Hello, everybody, and welcome to Stack Trace, the podcast that is all about life and technology from two developers' perspectives. And those two developers are me, John Sundell, and my good friend, Mr. Guy Rambo. How's it going, Mr. Rambo? I'm doing great, John. How are you? I'm doing great as well. And I hear that you are packing your things, you are getting ready, you're putting your flip-flops on, you have the, you're getting into the vacation mindset because it sounds like you are heading out for a little bit of a trip. Is that right? That's true. A uh, little bit sounds right because it's within the island that I live in. <laughs> so it's not <laughs> a, a big trip or anything like that. But yeah, taking a few days off and going to a beachfront house in uh, the north of the island here. So it's going to be fun times. Yeah, that's awesome. I've become a big fan of like nearby vacationing, uh, especially like during the pandemic with all of the travel restrictions and so on. And sometimes you can technically travel, but it's just much more of a hassle. So uh, we've been also doing a lot of like vacationing here, like within a one to two hour drive radius from, from where we live here in northern Poland. And it's just been really nice to discover our kind of wider neighborhood, if you will, or like the area next to us. And there's just so many beautiful places that you typically wouldn't go to because when I usually plan my vacations, that that means like going abroad somewhere, like maybe going to Southern Europe or going somewhere else. But uh, it's just been nice to kind of discover our closer areas here uh, as we've been vacationing the last like year or so. Yeah. Uh, although for you, going to another country is not that big a deal as it is here, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. That That's the really nice thing about Europe is that, you know, I can drive my car for like four or five hours or something and be in a different country. So that is <laughs> it's pretty nice. Uh, but because of this vacation that is coming up that you're going to have, uh, we are pre-recording the next episode. We're, we want to say that and be like very transparent and, and, and honest about that because if there are any breaking news happening, then you know why we won't comment on it on the next episode. And that also means that this episode and the next one will be a little bit shorter because we're recording them together, right? So... Uh, just some programming notes here so that you know, all of our listeners, what's going on. Yeah, but the, both episodes are going to be great, I can guarantee. Yeah, we have some really nice topics lined up, which I can't wait to talk to you about. Uh, but before we jump into our main topic for this episode, I of course want to hear, what have you been up to? I got a new Mac. All right, finally! You yes. finally got your M1 MacBook Pro. Absolutely. So I got it here, my new 14-inch MacBook Pro M1 Max, and I have problems remembering the full specs uh, all of the time. So I took a screenshot and made a little image with all of the specs that people always ask about. So we'll leave a link in the show notes for the full specs. I'm not going to mention them here. It's It's on the top end of the line, but it's not like the fully maxed out M1 Max. Right. So I think it's similar to the one I ordered, uh, almost identical if memory serves. Maybe you went for a little bit larger hard drive or something like that. I don't remember those specifics either, but I think we have very similar machines. Yeah, they're pretty close. Uh, so I thought I would share some of my first impressions here. Um, not that first impressions. Uh, it's a, a little bit over a week, I think, or maybe a little bit under a week. But anyway, I've been using it quite a lot uh, and working full-time on it for the past few days. So it's, yeah, I, I do have good impressions, uh, not just, oh, I just unboxed it. So I think I can talk about it a little bit more than if I had received it yesterday. So 
I first want to talk about the exterior design, and this is something I heard people talk about, about them being a little bit heavier and, and thicker, and it's not that the actual physical dimensions are that much larger, but it has this feel to it. It, it feels chunky, and, and it has like a this like brick structure to it. And it reminds me a lot of the old Macs, like the PowerBook era Macs. I have an old PowerBook here. I think it's a G4. And when I hold this new 14-inch MacBook Pro on my hands and when I open the lid, it has a similar feeling to it. Uh, it's very different. It's much nicer in many ways. I think the G4 has like a latch for the, the lid. They didn't use the magnetic uh, thing they, they've been using for, for a long time. But it does have a similar feeling to the PowerBook era, Max. Right, yeah, I totally agree. And the design is retro in a way, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's kind of what we mean by this. It's that it, it feels like they took a step back when it comes to the actual look of the design, even though, of course, the computer is just like packed full of really, really advanced, really amazing technology, but the design itself feels more practical, and I think that also gives it more of that retro vibe. I also love how rounded it is, like that yeah. it's more round around the corners and, and things, and, and I'm not sure if it actually is, like I haven't measured the actual millimeters of the rounded corners, but it just feels, even though it feels like more like like a brick, like larger, <laughs> it, it does also feel rounder at the same time. Yeah, that's uh, definitely true. And in terms of size and, and weight, I, I had been using as a laptop my M1 MacBook Air, so there's a significant difference, but nothing that changes anything about how I would use this machine. Like, I, I have used it on my lap, on the couch, and, and in other circumstances where I was using it as just a regular laptop, and it didn't really bother me. Uh, like, I wasn't feeling tired or it wasn't burning my uh, thighs or anything like that. So it's good. It's a good laptop for laptop use as well. It's not a laptop that you should only get if you want to use it as a desktop. I, I definitely enjoy using it as just a, a laptop. And part of what makes me use it as a laptop so much is this gorgeous display that it has. It's probably my favorite thing about this machine. Yeah, the display is just incredible. And I love the way it renders HDR. I love the brightness of it and just how dynamic it feels. And it's just fantastic for coding. So even if you're in a bright environment, you can use a dark theme if you want to. And even when you're using a light theme, it doesn't feel like the contrast is too high either. Like those I don't know if the UI itself is actually technically rendered in HDR. I will guess not. <laughs> but just the way the display works and the kind of dynamicness of it just really lends itself well, both to like watching movies or playing games or, or things like that that are more like dynamic in terms of the actual content, but also just viewing and editing text, like both coding and also writing articles and things on this computer is just such a great experience. Yeah, definitely. I do notice the same thing that other people mentioned about the promotion, that it's not as noticeable on the Mac as it is on an iPhone or iPad. And I think it has to do mainly with the fact that on the Mac, you're not directly manipulating things as you are on mobile devices. 
But I do see a difference and I do notice it when, especially when you're moving around quickly, when you're doing like a big refactor in Xcode and you're selecting a bunch of text and, and cutting and pasting and right-clicking and all of that stuff happens so smoothly and it, it sounds silly like, oh, I, I need promotion for my text editor. Yeah, but it's not like it, it really makes you feel more productive even even though it doesn't make you more productive but just that feeling that things are snappier yeah i totally agree i think 120 hertz is so much just about the feel like when you go from 30 to 60 you can really see the difference right like there's a huge difference at least to me <laughs> between yep. like running a game for example in 30 frames per second or 60 frames per second but even like if you plug your monitor into like a 30 hertz screen or if you use like an incompatible HDMI cable like I, I've done accidentally a few times where you do get like 4K only at 30 frames per second, it feels really slow, right? And then when you go to 60, like after going upwards from there, like to from 60 and to 120, it's not like it becomes noticeably more smooth. You can tell with some animations and things like that, but it's not that huge difference as it is from going from 30 to 60. But the feel is really different. Like, if you play a game or if you are writing code or anything else where you're just interacting with a computer and you want that fast response, even if, like, I don't think Xcode is, like, constantly running at 120 frames per second on the Mac. I think that would be very wasteful. And that's a big appeal of ProMotion as well is that it has that dynamic frame rate. It's not just locked to 120 frames per second, but the responsiveness feels so much better. And I think that is definitely nothing, not something that you should kind of just say oh, it doesn't matter like i think it matters a lot yeah definitely and system animations like expose and even things like moving the mouse cursor around the mouse cursor moves at 120 and you can definitely notice it so yeah in general everything feels more smooth and it feels really great when i'm working with uh, something like an animation that i'm making or an, an interaction that I'm making, it's really nice to see it in this faster frame rate than I'm used to on the Mac. It, it really feels quite amazing. And, and yeah, I, I really love this promotion display. Not just the promotion aspect, but the entire display, the uh, rounded corners. I don't love the notch, but it doesn't bother me, especially since it's hidden in, in the menu bar. I, I am using a piece of software that I was never a user of, which is Bartender, because I do have quite a few menu bar icons, and because of the notch, you do lose a little bit of space for those. So I am using Bartender now to, to keep those in check and only keep the relevant ones visible at all times. I, I really like it. I think the market for Bartender increased significantly <laughs> with these new machines, uh, so it was, I, I don't know, uh, reverse Sherlocking, maybe? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So this is an interesting point of comparison, I feel like, where you've been using the M1-based MacBook Air, and now you're using this new 14-inch MacBook Pro, and both are Apple Silicon-based, so I'm guessing that performance-wise, you had a similar experience to me, which was... The performance is awesome, but it was already pretty awesome, right? <laughs> uh, but how does it compare, like, using these two computers, especially, like, in the laptop configuration? Because when I did my initial review, like, what was it now, a few months ago on the show of, of yeah. this machine, 
I didn't have that comparison because I hadn't been using a Mac laptop for a couple of years at that point. So what's that been like for you going from the Air to the new MacBook Pro? It, it's really interesting. Uh, I must say, I, I, I don't know the correct word to use. I wasn't disappointed or I wasn't maybe underwhelmed would be the word. Uh, I, I was expecting to feel more of a difference in terms of performance. And to be completely clear, I haven't measured anything. Like, I'm not really a fan of benchmarks. I think they're mostly stupid. Uh, so I just use it as I would use any Mac normally. And I do notice, I think the thing that's making the most difference in my day-to-day -day use is the extra RAM. Uh, and to be clear, I was not using my MacBook Air all of the time. My main Mac was a, an M1 Mac Mini with 16 gigs of RAM. Yeah, but you have the same configuration there, more or less, right? It's the same computer in different form factors. Yeah, sim similar configurations. Um, but yeah, the main difference I think I can feel so far, and to be clear again, I have been using this for like a week. I haven't done any graphics stuff. Sometimes I use After Effects for uh, animations and things like that, and I haven't used it yet. I'm sure I'm going to notice a big difference there uh, when I'm, I'm doing these renders because it has a more powerful GPU and more CPU cores. But yeah, it, it was a smaller difference in initial perception than, than I thought it would be. But I definitely like the fact that uh, I, I don't know if people who use M1 Macs with 8 gigs of RAM notice this, but macOS is actually kind of pausing background apps uh, sometimes. So I would notice sometimes I would leave a page in system preferences in the background because I was testing something in AirBuddy and I needed to be tweaking settings all the time. And sometimes if it was a long time uh, that I had left system preferences, I would go back and it would kind of like relaunch system preferences. I could see it kind of relaunching. It would show the initial screen a little bit and then quickly reopen the last pane. Uh, and that happened for lots of apps. A little bit of a delay when switching apps, especially when you're using Xcode, which completely dissolves the RAM on your Mac. Um, so I, I do notice that a lot. But yeah, in terms of raw performance that I can feel, it's not a huge difference for things like Xcode for me. Yeah, and that I think mostly comes down to the fact that you're still using the same CPU cores, right? Like it's mm -hmm. still based on the M1 platform. So your single-threaded performance will be identical, but of course when you have multi-threaded operations, that's when you can see a big difference. And I talked about it uh, way back when I ported Publish to be uh, using the new Swift concurrency system to really take advantage of all those CPU cores. And if I did that then, then I could see a huge difference between my previous computer and my new computer. Or huge maybe is overstating it, but I could see a difference, right? Like it was a good upgrade. But in terms of single-threaded performance, which so many of the operations you run in, in, in general use, like whether it's code-related or other kinds of tasks, like there's a lot of things that have to run on the main thread or just in single-threaded in general... Uh, that that's when you're not going to really see a big difference. Yeah, I guess if there is a difference in single-threaded, it's going to be related to throttling. So I can probably sustain a, a heavy workload on this machine for longer without any drops in uh, CPU frequency. That would happen on the air because it doesn't have a cooling system. I mean, it does, but it's a passive cooling system. Right. So uh, I guess, yeah, since it has fans and it has more space to breathe, 
that can be better. Uh, and speaking of that, one thing I noticed, uh, which is kind of weird being used to the M1 MacBook Air, is things like the palm rests get a little bit warm. And that doesn't happen on the MacBook Air. At least it didn't happen on, on my MacBook Air. But sometimes when I'm using this machine with the built-in keyboard, I do feel the, the palm rests getting a little bit warm from the heat dissipation. That's just a feature for me because, you know, it's very <laughs> cold over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, not the case here. But but yeah, it, it's I, I'm not complaining. Like, it's that that's how laptops used to be forever. And... Also, it doesn't get near as hot as my like 16-inch Intel MacBook Pro used to get, like to the point where it's uncomfortable to type on the keyboard. Uh, it's just like a, a fact, a, an interesting fact. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I've been actually pushing my 14-inch MacBook Pro quite a bit recently because I've been finally starting to play the really excellent game Divinity Original Sin 2 which is a really cool like RPG with turn-based combat and so on. It's won a lot of awards, and it's available on the iPad as well, but I, I chose to play it on the MacBook Pro here. I actually also bought it for the Xbox, but then I realized on Xbox it only runs at 30 frames per second. I guess they haven't updated it for the latest console generation yet, but yeah. on the Mac, you have all these settings that you have with PC gaming, right? Like where you can yeah. just toggle everything. And I found some really neat settings where even if I ran it at 4K, like native 4K resolution, I could almost hit a 60 frames per second, but it wasn't really stable. Uh, so I, I took it down to 1440p. And if I then run it at ultra settings, I can run it like a super, super smooth 60 frames per second. So that's been amazing to, to play that game here on the, on the computer. And when I do that, the, the machine does get quite warm and it spins up the fans <laughs> quite a bit. Uh, but I will note, though, that this is not a native Apple Silicon application yet. So it's running under Rosetta. And it's actually pretty incredible if you think about it, that wow. you can run this kind of demanding game with really good graphics. You can run it at 60 frames per second at 1440p, which is still a high resolution under emulation and it still works so well on a laptop so you know it's 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 pretty incredible this whole system but i have been having an opportunity to at least hear the fans which during most of my day-to-day -day work even when doing ios development with multiple simulators and compiling code and so on i rarely hear the fans yeah i haven't heard the fans here at all so far even using xcode quite heavily I think uh, I would probably have noticed the difference in performance and especially RAM even more if I use the iOS simulator a lot, but I don't. I usually don't use the iOS simulator. Uh, I don't do that much iOS development anymore. Uh, and when I do, it's using a real device, which I prefer. But uh, yeah, if you use a lot of simulators, then yeah, CPU, RAM, all of that stuff is going to make a huge difference because those can yeah get quite expensive. So uh, to finalize here, just two more things uh, to mention. The battery life is amazing. Uh, like it's, it's pretty much like my MacBook Air. I haven't, again, I'm not a benchmark. I, I am just a user. So I haven't counted the hours or anything, but I can totally do a full day's work on this machine and still have a little bit of battery left at the end of the day, which is amazing and charging with the ability to charge using a MagSafe cable or a USB-C cable. Love that flexibility. I'm using a USB-C cable uh, in my office and upstairs on the table, I use a USB-C cable. I have 
94 watt or 95 watt charger that I used for my 16 inch MacBook Pro back in the day. So I'm using that one upstairs so I don't have to be moving the charger around. And also this was my first time in quite a while where I did full on migration assistant because I got this machine at the end of the day uh, on, on a day and, and I wanted to work the next day on it. So I unboxed it and I had a carbon copy cloner backup of my Mac mini and migration assistant was fantastic. Like it worked flawlessly, transferred everything, all of the apps, uh, licensed apps, all of the stuff that I had is just here and it, it's working. So uh, I'm really happy about that. Only had uh, minor issues with Adobe stuff, but that's not surprising. Uh, and I had also a little uh, glitch with Backblaze. Uh, it got quite confused uh, with Migration Assistant, but other than that, perfect experience. Almost as good as doing the direct transfer when you get a new iPhone. Uh, I don't really know how much time it took because I left it and went to bed, <laughs> so it was ready the next morning. But I don't think it took a really long time uh, because I was using a really fast external SSD with a Thunderbolt cable. So probably took like two hours, I guess. So yeah, thumbs up for Migration Assistant as well. And overall, this is a really good machine. I expect to be using it for a good while. The only thing is that I am currently uh, waiting for a laptop stand that I bought and I plan on using this machine on a laptop stand with an external keyboard and trackpads for posture reasons and because I want to use this magnificent display that I paid for and I don't <laughs> want to hook this up to my external LG display that I have here, which is great. Like, it's a really good display, but it doesn't compare to this. So, uh, yeah, definitely going to be using this internal display as much as possible. Yeah, this computer has actually turned me into a two-display person. Like, <laughs> I, for the longest time, I was always using my laptops in clamshell mode. I was using the Mac Mini, which doesn't have a display. So I was just using that single display, and I'm still primarily almost always working on just one display at a time. Like, I'm not just continuously moving windows between each one, but both because this display is just so good that I want to keep using it. And also when you have the laptop open, you get the advantage of true tone, even on your external display, which Ooh. is really neat. Like it really makes a difference. And uh, so I've been just using it most of the time, at least with the uh, like laptop open so that I'm using that display. And I usually put like Slack and iMessage and Maybe some design if I'm working on a on a UI there so I can see the design and work on Xcode full screen at the same time. So it's been really neat, actually. Nice. Uh, but speaking of games, you talked about playing games. You're also playing a, a game of your own, right? That's right. Yeah. So we know since before that I have my different corners on this podcast, right? There's the concurrency corner. There's the Swift UI corner, static site generation corner. Uh, but Rambo, are you ready to bend the fabric of space-time here and combine the Swift UI corner with my game corner? Ooh, I, I think that's dangerous. <laughs> yeah, let's see what's gonna happen. So I mentioned a few episodes ago that I've been experimenting with Swift UI in the context of doing 
these custom keyframe-based animations. So when you have a series of PNG images, for example, you want to iterate over them and use those images to run a keyframe animation, or you want to do some other custom animations. And we also talked about some of the work you've been doing in AirBuddy with SwiftUI to create some really neat animations. And I know that you've been doing even more animation work with SwiftUI Rambo, which we'll talk about in a second. So lots of exciting things. Um, but I've been continuing this experiment, and part of why I wanted to do this prototype and, and try SwiftUI in this context was I just wanted to see how well it would perform if you would have this large number of views that would all kind of update continuously. You would have them all arranged in a custom way, so not necessarily using like a list or a grid, but like creating something more custom. And my initial experiment was a huge success. Like I could see that... With some tweaks, like I wrote a custom animation controller that is like actually cycling through those frames using Grand Central Dispatch and Core Animation. So I wouldn't invalidate the entire view graph every single time I needed to change one of those animation frames. I would just do that a little bit more custom in a more efficient way, kind of just taking a, sh a shortcut there. But in terms of the actual view hierarchy, using SwiftUI entirely. So the entire scene would all be based on SwiftUI views with stacks and spacers and observable objects and, and all that good stuff. Nice. So that was a big success. And then I thought, what could be a next nice step for this? Well, I have this game that I've been working on on and off for actually 10 years at this point. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Where I did finish it originally. Like I started working on it in 2012 and in 2013, one year later, I actually shipped it on the App Store and it was on the App Store for like a year or two or something like that. But it's a turn-based multiplayer strategy game. And back then there were so many changes being made to Game Center, which I was using as the back end. And like new iPhones came out around that time with different screen sizes and the graphics were all optimized for, you know, the fixed size of the iPhone screens at the time. So there was a lot of work involved in keeping the game up to date. So I eventually decided that I don't really have time for that. I was working at Spotify at the time, working pretty long hours, so didn't really have time to uh, work on game development much in my spare time back then. So I pulled it from the App Store, and since then, I've been wanting to bring it back. Like, I've been wanting to do a reboot, right? Like, that's the trend in gaming right now, that, you know, <laughs> all these different franchises are being rebooted, so I should do that as well. Uh, so over the, the last, like, let's say five or six years or something, I've been doing a lot of experiments and, and trying to, like, work on it in my spare time, trying to find some time to, to bring the game back, and... During those years, the game has gone through so many different rendering engines <laughs> because also like this, these kinds of hobby projects, they are a great way for me to just try out different things, right? Mm -hmm. Like to learn about these different rendering technologies to just experiment and have fun because that's really all it is about. Like when I'm working as a freelancer, I have this constant, you know, schedules and deadlines and I want to ship things as fast as possible and build things like really efficiently for, for the clients but when I'm working on a hobby project, I, I kind of just want to have fun. It, it's, it's supposed to be a fun, relaxing thing to do in my spare time. It's not supposed to be like just ruthless efficiency. Let's ship this as fast as possible. Yeah. <laughs> so I take a lot of liberties when it comes to just like experimenting with the rendering and, and things like that. So I have written now the same game using UIKit, which was the original version. Uh, then I did a version using SpriteKit. I did a version using Core Animation. I eventually wrote Imagine Engine using Core Animation and then reused that. 
and I also used Metal for a little while, and now I'm using SwiftUI. <laughs> so <laughs> the game has basically used every rendering technology that Apple offers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's really nice. Uh, and I guess because you've done that, you could probably share your thoughts on, like, what's your take on, on these rendering technologies, all of them? Right, so... Of all those rendering technologies, only SpriteKit and Metal, you could also say, are like game-focused, right? Like yeah. Apple is not pitching UIKit or SwiftUI as a game technology. <laughs> <laughs> But we also have to remember what kind of game this is. So we'll leave a link in the show notes to a recent tweet I made with this new SwiftUI-based version showing it running on an iPhone X, actually, like a four-plus-year-old device running at 60 frames per second. So a little bit of a spoiler there. It runs really well. Uh, so you can see what type of game we're talking about. So it's not the one of those games where you have a lot of, like, flying around spaceships or something and, and shots fired and things like that. It's, it's a strategy game, so it's more like a board game, but digital, right? So yeah. you're seeing things from, from the top down, and you can tap on units to move them around and select things. So uh, in that sense, like, the UI frameworks Apple provide actually are a nice fit because you get a lot of the kind of event handling and inputs and, and the UI things as well, uh, kind of for free by using these technologies. But then the, the challenge, of course, is how do they scale to this large number of views? Like the, the map you're playing on is 15 by 15, which means that there's like 200-ish uh, tiles, which means that there is uh, like hundreds of objects because one tile can have... Uh, multiple objects on it. Like there can be some terrain, there can be some unit, there can be a building, there can be some effects on top of that. So it can be like even thousand plus views on the screen. And I don't think most iOS apps render like a thousand views on the screen at the same <laughs> time. So it is definitely outside of kind of the standard realm of, of what you would use these technologies for. But that's why it's so interesting to me to see like how would these technologies work. And UIKit, this was, again, back in 2012-2013, I was able to, with some optimizations, uh, make UIKit work well in this, in this context, which really impressed me at the time. And now I wanted to do something similar for SwiftUI to see, would SwiftUI work well, even with this large-scale kind of game environment with all these animating objects, all these overlapping things uh, running at the same time? And it, like I mentioned, it works incredibly well. It's has really, really impressed me just how efficient SwiftUI is when it comes to the actual pushing of pixels and the actual rendering, given that it is such a high-level declarative framework. Even when I put all these hundreds of views on the screen, all of them animating and showing, like even on the iPhone X, it just runs at a rock-solid 60 frames per second, which is just very, very impressive to me. And did you have to do any different types of things with regards to state management? than you'd have to do on a regular SwiftUI app. Uh, so to prevent unnecessary renderings or, or things like that, did, did you do anything different in that space? Or are you using the observable object, uh, regular Swift state management stuff? So one of the major points of this whole experiment was that I wanted to use SwiftUI just in a standard way. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to hack it. I, I wanted to write it in the same way that I use SwiftUI when I build iOS apps or Mac apps, like with the same kind of state management tools, with the same kind of views like stacks and spacers and frame modifiers and so on, like all of the same tools that you would use in normal app development and all of the same state management techniques. Uh, so... 
it's 90% just standard Swift UI code. It's uh, I in fact I someone asked me to show the source code and I just posted a screenshot from Xcode with with some of the source code to show that it is indeed a normal Swift UI view. It's not some kind of trick under the hood. Uh, the only caveat to that is that custom animation controller that I mentioned where the I'm not like I don't have one observable object at the root that like every time a single frame needs to change, like a single sprite needs to change, the whole view is invalidated. That would be too inefficient. And also it's like, you wouldn't want to write it that way anyway. It's not like yeah. I'm working around a Swift UI limitation. It's just, that would just be completely inefficient. So I'm, I'm writing, I wrote my own animation controller, which is still an observable object, but it's just that the invalidation happens locally where that frame needs to be redrawn rather than ha- happening on the scene level. Yeah, that makes sense. So... I guess SwiftUI is a game engine, after all. <laughs> I guess it is. <laughs> so yeah, I'm going to continue with this. Like, I've made more progress on this project in the last like two weeks than in the last six years. <laughs> and part of that, I think, is because of SwiftUI. Like, it is so much fun to work with. And it lets me like really implement these features very quickly, where I can just write the algorithms that power the game, like, for example, the pathfinding logic or what should happen when you select one of your characters or how how far should they be able to see on the map? Where should I render fog? Like, those are all just algorithms. Like, I could just copy and paste that code over from my previous projects and then just wire that up to the observable object infrastructure in the state management system and then write the view code and then it all just works, right? And that is just such a big appeal for me with SwiftUI is that you don't have to worry about the, that connection point anymore where you previously I had to update the model and then find the corresponding node in the graph to update and then maybe remove one or add one depending on if a character was added or, or removed from the game and so on. Now I just change the state and the whole game just always is reflecting the current state. It's it's really, really nice. Yeah, and that doesn't mean that you can't have the same thing with other engines. You could definitely do that, but then you'd have to implement all of that yourself. And in this case, you're just relying on SwiftUI's view graph and the way it handles updates and finding the correct things to invalidate. So you're basically delegating that work to SwiftUI, and if you were using something different, you would have to implement that yourself, and that's a lot of work. Yeah, exactly, and that's, again, why I'm so impressed by SwiftUI here, because you you would think, just looking at it, like, the fact that you're recreating all of these structs every time, like, you move a character in the game, or you, you know, uh, defeat a character, or create a new one, or you capture a building, and so on, you you're always, like, recreating the view graph like those structs but SwiftUI is just so efficient that it just handles it without any problem even at that scale so yeah it's been a really interesting experiment and I'm very excited to keep working on this now I think it's it's really inspiring to see SwiftUI work so well in this case and just to see the rendering being so efficient so we'll see I will continue to report back I'm not gonna declare victory just yet because well, we don't know. Maybe I will run into some issue or something with SwiftUI in this context, but I'll definitely continue this experiment and hopefully maybe ship the game again at some point. I would really love to have this game again on the App Store because I want to play it myself because I think it's a quite fun game. Nice. Looking forward to the release date. <laughs> awesome. So speaking of SwiftUI, I know that, Rambo, you've been doing quite a lot of work recently with SwiftUI animations. Like we talked about it 
in the context of like custom animations and so on. But I think you've been really diving much deeper into the SwiftUI animation system. And you've also been doing some interesting prototypes as well that I would love to hear more about. But before we get into that, let's take a very quick break to thank this episode's sponsor. This week's episode of Stack Trace is brought to you by Sentry. Sentry helps iOS developers monitor the performance of their code. With Sentry, you can quickly identify performance issues. And whenever an issue was detected, then you will get the full end-to-end distributed trace info so that you can see exactly where a poor performing API call was made and what caused it. With Sentry, you can detect and measure anything from both cold and warm app launches, slow frame rendering, freezes, and other UI glitches, and much more, so that you can then improve your mobile app's performance for maximum efficiency without requiring maximum effort from you and your team. So head over to sentry.io slash four slash iOS, or just use the link that's in the show notes to help support this podcast and to try Sentry for free for your iOS app. And if you use our special promo code STACKTRACE during signup, then you will get to use Sentry for free for three whole months. Once again, that's sentry.io slash four slash iOS, or just use the link that's in the show notes. And remember to use that offer code STACKTRACE when signing up for that special three-month offer. Thanks a lot to Sentry for sponsoring this episode of Stack Trace. All right, Rambo. So like I mentioned there before the ad break, you have been doing uh, quite a lot of animation work recently with SwiftUI. So tell us about it and tell us about your experiences using SwiftUI in this very animation-driven context. Yeah, so I don't do a lot of contracting work as we've established before. But when someone comes up to me and asks me to help them make some user interface prototypes for macOS for some really interesting ideas, which unfortunately I can't share, and basically my work is to do the prototypes and to come up with UI ideas and interactions and things like that, I I don't know, you, you seem to know me fairly well, John. Does that sound like a job for me? That sounds like a perfect fit for you. <laughs> it sounds like the dream job. <laughs> and it kind of is. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with that. Uh, yeah, I can't say the specifics of what I'm working on, but it's a bunch of fun uh, macOS user interface prototypes. And when I think prototypes, of course, the technology that first comes to mind is SwiftUI. We've talked about how good it is for prototypes and it might sound a bit weird for some listeners, like, why would someone hire a, a quote, real developer like myself <laughs> to make, quote, fake stuff? Uh, so, yeah, because probably none of my code, or at least most of my code, will ever go into production at this company. But the thing is that design tools like Sketch, Figma, and whatnot, they don't offer the same flexibility as you have with a complete coding environment and an ID and UI framework. And the goal there was and is with these prototypes is for people at the company to actually be able to use the prototype and, and try things out and see how they feel. And I think that's quite difficult to achieve with just a design tool. So in a sense, I'm using SwiftUI and Xcode as 
design tools. Yeah, and there's another huge advantage to that, which is that you can also, at the same time, while you're prototyping and trying out different ideas, you can also validate those ideas. Like, Mm -hmm. not just in terms of how they feel when you use them, but also validate how feasible they would be to implement technically, right? Whereas sometimes there's this problem where you get a design and the design is not really practical in some ways. Like, it might be very different from standard platform conventions. It might use system controls in a very different way that would require you to basically re-implement them from scratch, right? Yeah. And w- But when you're doing the work already, like the prototyping work and the design work in Xcode, like using actual Swift UI and AppKit and so on, you are also validating the technical aspects of the ideas at the same time. Yeah, even though the final implementation probably won't use SwiftUI, at least it gives me an idea that I can transmit over to the actual engineers that are working on the product. Uh, Hey, I think this option is going to be a lot harder to implement. Maybe this other one is like half the amount of work because I've basically had to implement it and... I went a bit further with the prototype than I had to, I think, because it's actually fairly functional, as you've seen. Uh, but I've, I'm having a lot of fun with it. And because I've been doing lots of things that I would not normally do for my own apps, uh, because the domain of this product is very different from the stuff that I usually work on, I've had to learn a lot as well about SwiftUI and how to do things in SwiftUI. And some of them were more difficult for me to grasp at the beginning because it's the classic, like, oh, I could definitely do this in AppKit. I know how to do this in AppKit, but I'm already writing this thing in SwiftUI. Let me learn how to do it in the SwiftUI way. Uh, So I've been enjoying uh, this whole process. I think... It's a really good tool, not just for companies who have the resources to hire someone like me to to do these prototypes for them, but also even if you're a solo developer, like I've done quite a few prototypes for AirBuddy and other products using completely blank Xcode projects with like a Swift UI view and just quickly iterating on that. And the end implementation wasn't SwiftUI. It ended up being something different. Yeah, and I think that's completely fine as well, right? Like, again, it helps you validate those ideas and you can get a feel for how easy would this be to implement completely in SwiftUI or maybe a mix between SwiftUI and UIKit or AppKit and so on. Like, you can get a feel for what would be the, the, the good approach to take here in actual production. And sometimes that might be SwiftUI, right? Like sometimes yeah. you might just say, well, if I'm working on an app that I, where I could technically use SwiftUI where the deployment target is high enough, then I might just go for it, right? Like, And that's, again, an advantage here. And I also uh, agree with you there that the learning aspect is also really strong here where prototyping and trying out different ideas like this just gives you this really nice environment where you don't have to worry too much about connecting this code with your existing code base or something. You can just kind of work in this isolated environment and it's good for learning. Again, it's not something we can do all day, every day, except if someone is paying you for it, like <laughs> like you you get to do Rambo, which is amazing. But, you know, most of us, when we're working as developers in different projects, we have existing code we have to connect to. We have all these different considerations we have to keep in mind, which is a different equation when you're working in a completely new project, which is also why I like to do this game development so much, like I mentioned, where it's like this different environment where you can just have fun. 
Yeah, definitely. It's also a great way to find the right answer to magic numbers. So if you have uh, a given animation, maybe you need to tweak the duration or the spring parameters for an animation. And if you have a prototype, you can iterate on that really quickly and find those magic numbers. And then you can just punch them into your real implementation later, uh, which... Uh, Iterating quickly, I think, is a big advantage of prototyping and of SwiftUI in general, but especially when you're prototyping, because even when you're using SwiftUI, if you're in your actual real-life project, it can sometimes not be as quick as you'd wish to, to iterate. So things like that. And I actually, I, I made something interesting <laughs> in this case where... I have this environment object that's injected into everything, basically, and it's a prototype settings object, and it has a bunch of properties for sizes, colors, padding, animation parameters, all sorts of things. And I actually made a, a little thing where it will show a panel within the prototype app and I can tweak those values while the app is running and it will update things in real time. And, and you've seen that. I, I think you liked it. And uh, yeah, I could just use SwiftUI previews. M many people are probably screaming, but SwiftUI previews are limited, especially on the Mac. Uh, when you have a SwiftUI preview on the Mac and you want to actually see it live and be able to interact with it, you have to click the button and then it opens a new window. And every time it updates, the window goes away and then you have to bring it back so to quickly change the padding on something it can be a pain so i came up with this solution where i yeah have this little panel in the actual app where i can tweak parameters and it's really nice to be able to see the results in real time and then i can just copy the different values and paste them back in and those become the real values yeah exactly and we mentioned game development earlier, and this is definitely a very, very common uh, practice to do when working on games, because sometimes, especially if you're working on like a really large like AAA game, the compilation times, like we complain in iOS land, where it's like, oh, it takes three minutes to compile my project. Well, some games, they take like, they have to compile them overnight sometimes, <laughs> you know, it's like, it can be really, really long. And then you usually have people working on the actual like scripting for the game and the actual scenarios and the dialogue and so on. Like they typically have all these tools embedded in the engine and in the game running that they can use to tweak all these parameters and, and add things dynamically. So you don't have to like rebuild the entire engine code every time you make any of those tweaks. And I think absolutely in the world of app development, you can totally use that same idea, which is you build your own tooling, basically, right? Like yeah. you build your own little tooling. And with SwiftUI, again, it's so easy because you can just create that observable object. You create a little simple view where it has some couple of sliders that are just connected to those bindings of those published properties in that object. And there you go. <laughs> that's that's your tooling that you just created in like 10 minutes. Again, this is assuming that you know SwiftUI, right? That you've yeah. learned the framework. Like, of course, if you're a complete beginner, it's going to probably take a little bit longer than that. But still, it's it's really fast if you compare it to other technologies. So you can create that little tooling for yourself and then you can just use it and you can continue to get good benefits of it from it. And I'm just absolutely in favor of doing things like that. Like, of course, you don't want to spend your whole day again writing tools, but if you can write a little tool for yourself that takes like, let's say an hour to build, and then you're just saving a lot of time 
and also it's much easier to work on your project because you built that tool, well, I think that's a huge win. So yeah, I, I definitely agree. Yeah, it took me a bit longer to do it, uh, probably a little bit over an hour because I actually wanted something where I didn't have to declare each individual property that I wanted to add it. So I made a little system where the containing object conforms to a protocol and it can handle it, the internal things because because they're all codable structs. So I did some dictionary magic to be able to basically show a UI without knowing beforehand all of the properties that I want to, to edit. And it infers the type of control that it's going to show based on the type of the value of the property. Yeah, that's really cool. And... Again, I think this is very useful because you mentioned previews that uh, previews can do a lot of this stuff as well. Like you can change your values and see how they look, but previews don't work very well for animations in particular because yeah. they usually tend to glitch out a lot when it comes to animations. And also like previews are not, in my opinion, the best tool for previewing an app holistically. Like it's great for individual components. Like if you're building like a row or a card or something like that, like a list, it's great because you can just populate it with some different data. You can see what it looks like in dark mode and light mode and so on. Like, it's great for that. I use it all the time for those things. But when I want to run a UI kind of full screen or, or like in the app itself, and I want to check out the animations and see how everything interacts with each other and how the whole thing feels, then I definitely still want to run the app either in the simulator or on a device or in your case as a Mac app. And uh, then having a tool like this where you can just tweak these things as the app is running, it's just fantastic. Yeah, definitely. So a big part of this work that I've been doing involves both uh, bridging AppKit and SwiftUI in order to be able to do things such as handling swipe gestures on the trackpad, which uh, I, this one is actually on my Twitter. We can leave a link in the show notes. I tweeted a, a little demo that I made where I can swipe up and down on the trackpads. Uh, that's not exposed to SwiftUI by default, but I managed to make it work. But also a favorite topic of mine, and, and I know you like this as well, I've had to become even more familiar with how the SwiftUI animation and transaction thing works. Right, and that's really what I wanted to talk to you about here is that what's been your experience using uh, the new SwiftUI animation system? Because Animations in a kind of declarative environment has always been kind of challenging to express where if you are, for example, doing some kind of server-driven UI that some of our listeners might know I, I did a lot of in the past, uh, where you're kind of downloading some JSON and rendering the views based on that, it's all driven with your by your data, it can be tricky to like find a good way to express animations, like when you go from one state to the other, how should that animation work? And I think there's definitely a learning curve to using animations in SwiftUI. And you have to kind of not think so much about how your UI will change, but how your state will change. So what's been your experience here uh, doing a very animation-driven UI here? Like all things in SwiftUI, I feel like it's best to first think about your data model uh, and, and then you build the animation on top of that. Sometimes the how you want the animation to behave will dictate a, a little bit about your data model, but ideally you don't want that to happen too much. I have one instance in, the, in one of the prototypes that I showed you where I have a model 
but I needed something else for the animation, so I actually built a model that only exists within the view that displays those items. So I have like item and I have like a, a view item or a, a, I don't remember the exact name, but anyway, I, I've had to kind of tweak the model a little bit, but in order to not make that visible to the outside worlds and to not make my view model aware of this implementation detail of the view, I made a separate model type that's only used within that context of the view and the transition that happens uh, between two view states. Uh, so that's something that you need to think about. And the way I like to think about animations in SwiftUI matches a lot. One of the tips I gave at my BA Swiftable talk about animations in general, not specific to SwiftUI, which is to think about the end state first. So you first design your end state, and then you think about how things are going to animate. So that's how I like to approach things, uh, both in SwiftUI and otherwise. And it also really helps when you understand the transaction system. So SwiftUI does updates in transactions, and people who are familiar with core animation might find this familiar. It, it's similar in a sense, where you have a transaction that's going to update your view state, so if you want things to happen simultaneously, you do them within like a with animation block and that will create a transaction. But you can also create transactions manually, explicitly, and you can also attach modifiers to views that will make those views behave slightly different within a given transaction. And we can go a little bit further into that because that can you can make some really fun effects using that property. But I like to think of them as transactions. So especially when you are talking about a transition from a state to another state, you need to make sure that the entire state change that will cause that transition to happen happens within a single transaction. And that's especially important if you're using things like match geometry effect. Right, exactly. And... One thing that's been really interesting to me when I've been exploring SwiftUI's animation system is just how powerful it is and just how many options it offers. Because in the beginning, you might discover that with animation function that you just mentioned, and it's very similar to uiview.animate. So it feels very familiar. The only main difference is that instead of changing the views directly, like you would do in UIKit, where you would change the frame or change the opacity and so on, like directly on the views, you are instead changing the state in your animation block, and then the views that render that state is what's going to be animated. But you mentioned like transactions, match geometry effect, like there are so many more things. You can also create your own animated modifiers where you can animate completely custom how an modifiers being applied to a view, which also actually enables you to get notified when an animation completes, which I'm using in the game when I'm moving a character. So I want to know when the character finished moving. So I implemented that using a custom animated modifier. So there's just this really large depth, I think, to the animation system. And it just has so many capabilities, but it can be kind of hard to discover. I feel like almost I'm discovering new things about SwiftUI animations like almost on a weekly basis. 
Yeah, definitely. It, it is quite broad and it can sometimes be tricky to understand where exactly you put each thing, right? Uh, where do I put this modifier? Does it go before or after the other one? I think modifier ordering is one of the things I still struggle with in SwiftUI. Sometimes I will still make mistakes of putting the modifiers in the wrong order. But yeah, I, I agree that there's a lot of capability there. And I've been quite impressed lately with this work that I've been doing, uh, not with the work itself, with what SwiftUI brings to the table when it comes to animations and how customizable they are. I, I feel like for all of the stuff that we complain about that you can't customize with uh, SwiftUI, I feel like animations is one of the places where there's a lot of customizability. So just to give an example, one of the things you can do uh, with a view in SwiftUI is attach a transition modifier to it, which will dictate how the view behaves when it's added or removed from the view hierarchy. And you can add a transition that's a slide, and then it will slide in and out. But you can also use an asymmetric transition so that it will use a different one when it goes in and when it goes out. You can combine transitions. So you can say dot slide dot opacity, and then we will both slide and fade in and out. But something I learned yesterday, which I didn't know was possible, you can combine multiple transitions and you can add a custom animation curve and or a custom delay. So what I wanted to do is I had a view that was sliding out from the screen, but I also wanted it to fade out as it slides. But I didn't want the fade to start immediately when it started sliding. I wanted it to slide a little bit and then start to fade out. And you can do that with transitions in SwiftUI. So if you use the transition modifier, you can add an animation modifier to a particular transition in a chain of transitions or to the whole thing. And then you can add a delay to that animation and it will delay just that part of the transition. How cool is that? Yeah, it's super cool. and. Again, it's like the discoverability here is maybe not the best because yep. you have to figure out that you can type like a dot after like, it's not just like you sending this animation expression or this particular like transition to the system and then that's it. Like you can actually chain them together. Uh, there's there's a lot of capabilities there and you can also, and you can also make animations repeat that way. So you yeah. can say like repeat forever, repeat a number of times. Like, yeah, there's a lot of, capabilities there just in combining those built-in transitions and then of course you can also create completely custom animations as well so yeah it's it's definitely a very sophisticated animation system and i like how it's all still integrated into that very declarative model so the way you declare your views transitions is just by using modifiers like you would when you change their opacity or frame or or anything else uh, but then you the way you trigger the animations is using that with animation block so you still get that programmatic control over when exactly the animations should start, but then each view can declare how it behaves within that animation. Yeah, what I also like about the with animation trigger is that it can be triggered from things such as your view model. So your view model can decide whether something should be animated or not. And sometimes you want that to be the case. Sometimes not. Sometimes you want everything to be handled in the view itself, but 
sometimes, depending on what you're doing, you want your view model to be able to decide whether a given transition should, should animate or not. And I really like that capability. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because I've definitely completely changed my opinion on that. Where <laughs> in the beginning, when I first saw it, uh, when I first had to import Swift UI into my view model code and run that with animation block, it felt wrong. <laughs> like it felt like, I shouldn't be doing this in the view model. It should be in the view. Like the view should take care of all of the animations. But then as I was using it and also as I realized that it's actually not the view model telling the view how to animate, it's just telling it when to animate, right? Or if yeah. a given change should be animated or not. And then the view can contain all those transition properties and so on like like it does. Then I started feeling like this is actually a great idea and a good fit because so many times we are passing like animated true or false between a view or a view controller and a view model or another controller, right? Yeah. Like we always have to keep passing that animate true, animate false, animate true, animate false. But in this new kind of system and this architecture, the view model decides completely what change should be animated or not based on its state. And that's the realm of the view model. So it feels like a good fit. And then the view can control the actual details of each animation. So I've completely changed my opinion. I think it's a great thing now. I, I really like it. Yeah, definitely. So when it comes to, to animations in SwiftUI, uh, we have different options. And I like to, to hear from you what you decide to use in each situation because you can have more like explicit animations, like you mentioned, where you're animating a given view to express a state or to express an interaction like blinking or moving up and down and repeating and things like that. You have transitions between states where you're adding or removing views and you want those uh, additions and removals to be animated. And then you have match geometry effects, which I view it as a way to animate the same item. Uh, and that doesn't have to be necessarily the same view, but basically transition the geometry of a given view into the geometry of another view with the same data, uh, which is really interesting. And I've been using it quite a lot and really with really interesting results. But how do you choose between these different types of, of animations? So for me, the, the main thing I have to ask myself is, is this fundamentally kind of the same view or is it different views rendering the same data, right? Yeah. Where a good example of the same view would be if you have an image and when the user taps the image, you just want to zoom it in a little bit or zoom it out a little bit. That's still fundamentally the same view, but you're just changing the scale of it, right? Mm -hmm. So then I would apply a scale effect with a scale effect modifier. And then I would have a some kind of state in a view model or directly in the view that tells uh, what scale it should be, or maybe it's just a Boolean, like zoomed in true false. And then I use a with animation block to trigger that state change to animate between those two states. So it's uh, the same view, but it, the view is in different states. So then I use that kind of animations, like the state transition animations. Uh, when a it's instead two different views that should still render the same data, for example, let's take the Photos app on uh, the iPhone as an example, where if you tap a photo, the photo zooms all the way in to be full screen, and then you're moving to a different UI where you have different controls. You you see it like in yeah, like I mentioned in full screen mode. So it's 
fundamentally two different views, but they're rendering the same image. Then I use a match geometry effect, where I want to take the geometry from that first image and animate up to the second image, so you get that nice zoom-in effect. So that's kind of how I pick between those two. And the same thing applies to transitions as well, is transitions, like you mentioned, is for adding or removing a view from the view hierarchy. So when you want to do that, like an if or else block, is when you have two different views that are rendering the same data. SwiftUI tends to perform the best when you are not actually changing the view hierarchy, but just having the same view hierarchy rendering in different configurations. So like I mentioned, if all I want to do is scale an image, but still in the same view, I will not use two different views for that. I'll just use one view with a scale effect. And that tends to perform much better than if you have multiple views. Like if you have two copies of the same view, one is zoomed in and one is zoomed out. Yeah. But then again, if you're moving to a completely different screen, a different UI, then you want those to be two different views. So that's kind of the decision I make. Yeah, and uh, speaking specifically, first of all, I totally agree uh, with your choices there. I, I do quite the same thing. And if you're thinking about match geometry effects, uh, and if you look at the examples you can find online. I don't know about Apple sample code in this regard, but you're often going to see transitions between views using match geometry effect where you have the namespace and the two states represented within a single SwiftUI view. So you have the body of the view and you have like an if-else statement with one view with a given geometry and another view with another geometry and you'll have the match geometry effects in both and the namespace in that view. But often, like you mentioned, you actually want to use match geometry effect when you're transitioning between completely different, quote, screens of the app. And in that case, having both things represented within the same view hierarchy might not be the best situation. And I've had situations in my prototypes where I've had to handle that and it might seem weird at first, but you can totally pass in a namespace between views. So if you have a parent view that has multiple views within it that needs to use the same match geometry effect namespace, you can create the namespace using the property wrapper in this parent view, and then you just pass in the namespace ID to the child views, and they can use that namespace ID in the match geometry effect modifier. Uh, I'm writing code on a podcast here, but I think <laughs> I did a good job at explaining it. So basically, in your child views, you won't have at namespace. You'll have just a let namespace is a namespace.id. That will be the type. And that's how you can share a namespace between views. Yeah, I think that's a good way of explaining it. And this is, again, where the power of composition comes in, where you can create views that are tailor-made or they have they have just one purpose, right? So yeah. if you have, for example, that photo switching that I just talked about, where you go from having one photo uh, smaller and then zooming it in to be full screen, you could create a like photo zooming view that is just all about managing that state and it can contain that namespace and then it could have different child views one for rendering the smaller version one for rendering the large version and then it can just managing manage that transition and pass that namespace down like you mentioned rambo so i think this is where we can 
think about our view hierarchy, not just in terms of the actual pixels rendered on the screen, but also in terms of the behaviors. Like, where do I encode those behaviors? And if you can put those in the view hierarchy, I find that to be like a really nice way of creating like maintainable code that has that nice hierarchy, not just for the rendered results, but also for the transitions and the management of the views. You know what else you could use? And it's something I, I also realized quite recently because I've been doing more heavy usage of SwiftUI, but you could also use a view modifier for that because view modifiers are kind of like views themselves and they can wrap the view, they can do all sorts of things with the view and they can have state and they can have a namespace and they can have environment objects that they observe and all of that good stuff. So... Yeah, you can also use view modifiers for that sort of thing. Uh, that's how I actually, the, the API I designed for the swipe on the trackpad thing that I was talking about was done using a view modifier. So it, it uses a view modifier in order to have the callbacks in there. And that view modifier has a bunch of state within it and does all of the calculations and things like that and just passes the events uh, through these callbacks. And that's because, at least as far as I know, you can't create your own gesture, uh, uppercase G gesture types in SwiftUI. So I use the view modifier. Right. And that's another cool thing about this flexibility is that you can choose to implement things as a, like a wrapper view or as a modifier, which to your point there is also a wrapper view at the end yeah. of the day. Like every time we change a view in SwiftUI, we're always wrapping it in another view. Even if you're just applying a frame or a background color, you're actually wrapping your current view in another one that actually applies that change. So at the end of the day, these two different code structures are going to end up with the same result, more or less. Like if you create a wrapper view that has like a closure for the content and then you have the state management in there, like a VStack, for example, then that is one way. Or you could do a view modifier. And I think you can just decide that based on what you think feels the most intuitive for you or your team in each particular case, because we have both of those two options available. Yeah, my current approach is if it's something that should be reusable, I prefer a view modifier. But if it's a one-shot thing that's only going to be used in one place, I use a regular view. So in most cases, I start out with a wrapper view, like you mentioned. And then if I notice that I'm using that all over the place, then I will take the time to actually turn it into a view modifier. And my view modifier types are usually private and the only way they're accessible is through a little extension on view so that you can have the nice UI and it looks like a built-in modifier. Yeah, that's also always my goal is I want my own Swift UI views and my own modifiers to feel like the built-in ones. Like I want that nice consistency because that also makes it easier to onboard new developers onto the project where you don't have this completely alien architecture or structure that is so different from the built-in stuff. It all follows similar naming conventions, similar API design. Even if I don't agree 100% with some of the built-in API design, I still prefer to follow it as much as I can because it just makes everything feel, feel more coherent. Yeah, definitely. So just two more tips from me that I learned recently as well through this work. So one of them is that we mentioned transitions and the way you can use them when you want to control how a view behaves when it moves in and out of the hierarchy. And there's a, a thing with transitions that you can also do with match geometry effect is if the match geometry effect is doing something you don't like, you can usually control it 
by putting a transition before the match geometry effect modifier. So one thing that happens quite frequently with match geometry effect, at least in, in the things I was doing, is I am mutating the view hierarchy or the model and the view hierarchy is moving a bunch of items from one place to another and they are not disappearing. No items are disappearing. They're, they're just moving from a place to another place on screen. And sometimes match geometry effects will interpolate the opacity in a weird way. So it, it can look like the items are kind of fading out and fading back in during the transition, which if you just want them to move, that's not the right result. And I've noticed that if I add a transition modifier with the offset transition option, and you can obviously combine it with other transitions, uh, but without the opacity one, it will not change the opacity with the match geometry effect. So that's a, a neat little trick that I learned. Yeah, that's a very, very good tip. And what's the second one? So the final one for this episode is you can tweak implicit animations with the transaction modifier. So it's it's kind of uh, confusing, like transition, transaction. I'm talking about transaction modifier now. Uh, and the way you do it is, let's say you have uh, like the same example I just gave where you have a list of items or a collection of items that are all moving at the same time. Sometimes it might look better if there's a little bit of delay between each item moving. So you have like 10 squares and they're moving to another position, if they all move at the same time, it doesn't look as interesting as if uh, the first one goes first and then the second one slightly behind the first. It looks more natural and, and more fun. And uh, the way I did that when I did my uh, iPad's app library animation was a really hacky one because I didn't know about this trick, but now I know. So you can use the transaction modifier and it takes a closure, and the input to that closure is a in-out transaction. And the property of the transaction that you can modify is the animation. So you can say like transaction.animation equals transaction.animation.delay, and then you calculate the delay based on like the index of the item, for instance. And then it just works. So... That's a, a neat little trick that I learned. Yeah, that's a very good tip as well. Uh, I'm getting really in the mood for writing some animations now, actually, <laughs> when we're talking about these things. So maybe I'll go back to some of my projects and add some nice animations here and there. Because I totally agree that adding like offsets and these sort of things or just a little bit of noise or a little bit of irregularity to animations can be great because it makes them feel more natural, not just like a linear transition between A and B. It's more like fun. And this is also where spring animations can be fun as well, where you can add, it's actually really easy. You can do with animation dot spring and then you get a spring animation. Yeah. So yeah, lots of fun uh, options there. Uh, but I think we're going to have to uh, end our uh, little deep dive here into the Swift UI animation system. And of course, we can follow up if you have any specific questions about how we use Swift UI animations or if you want us to talk about something more in depth. Because we did say that this would be a shorter episode, but it actually turned out to be like more or less a full length episode. <laughs> so we just can't help ourselves but to dive deep into these things. So We'll definitely revisit the SwiftUI animation topic in the future. And if you have any questions, feel free to tweet them 
with the hashtag AskStackTrace on Twitter, and we will see your question and hopefully answer it on a future episode. But that's going to be it for this week's episode of StackTrace. So thanks so much for listening, everybody. Thanks so much to Sentry for sponsoring this episode, and we will talk to you again next week. So say goodbye, Mr. Rambo. Goodbye.